We've been walking through Matthew very slowly for a long time, and even maybe going slower as we're in the Passion Week and now looking at the rest of Christ. I suppose the, the key passage for this morning from Matthew would be again Matthew 27 verses 1 and 2 and then verses 11 through 14. And that's what we used last week as well. And we do have those printed in your bulletin. If you don't have your own Bible or if you'd rather have the New, the New King James Version, which I'll be using. But the passage in Matthew, the foundation from where we're coming from is in your bulletin as well as with a, a short outline of how we'll look at this passage this morning. And what we've been seeing is that there's two sets of three trials for Jesus as he goes to the cross. There are three Jewish trials, if you will, and three Gentile trials. And I think that's obviously by the providence of God, so it's neither Jew nor Gentile, but it's Christ being put to the cross for the sins of all types of people. And for the Jewish trials, we had high priest Annas, who was appointed by the Jews. And then, then Jesus was taken then to high priest Caiaphas, who was appointed by the Romans. And it was there at that second trial that, that Jesus was pronounced guilty of blasphemy. And of course, we could spend all day accounting all of the injustices of these trials. These were not proper trials. It was all being done in darkness before daybreak hit. So that means it was all illegal, but all that was being done so far was unjust, and they were looking for false witnesses to come forward to actually uh, prove Jesus guilty of something, and no, even the false witnesses couldn't agree on anything. And finally, Jesus is asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, yes. And then he goes on, he proclaims, in fact, I'm the Son of Man that Daniel prophesies, who ascends to heaven and takes the throne and will be coming back in judgment. And Caiaphas's reaction was, blasphemy! And the reaction there in, in that second Jewish trial was Jesus then was spit upon, he was struck in the face, he was mocked, and this is after being kept up all night long and all day long the next day as well. And then they took them to the meeting of the Sanhedrin, the third Jewish trial, and that, they had to wait till daybreak, so it could be official. You can't actually judge a man guilty until at least the sun is up. And so then they had to wait until daybreak, and the whole Sanhedrin met and actually pronounced him guilty. Notice they pronounced him guilty of blasphemy. And so then if even you look in your bulletin or you look in your own scriptures in Matthew 27, what we see in the first two verses of Matthew 27, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders, that's the Sanhedrin, of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So now the Jewish trials, in a sense, are over. Now we go to the three Gentile trials. And it goes from Pilate, then to Herod. And it's that second trial that we'll be looking at today that's only recorded in Luke chapter 23. And then he'll come back to Pilate again for the final decision, if you will. And that first trial with Pilate, that's what we looked at last week. In Matthew 27, verse 11 we read, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. But we saw last week that was the condensed version. There's an expanded version of that in John chapter 18. I won't have you go there. That's what we covered really most, most of last week. And the problem was that blasphemy won't work in a, in a Roman court. It doesn't get you anywhere. You know, go to our courts in the common kingdom, and you say, 
this man is a blasphemer. Well, that's not going to work so much if you're trying to get someone to be put to death, which is what the Jews wanted to do. And you might remember that the Romans had taken away the ability for the the Jews to, to kill their own, although if they wanted to, they did anyway. But according to the law, only the Roman government could put someone to death. So they had to do something. So we saw in John chapter 18 that they first of all said, well, he's an evildoer. That's what he is. And we wouldn't be bringing him here unless he was so bad. It's like, well, take him and, and, and charge him according to your own laws, what Pilate rightly says. But then if you actually were looking at Luke chapter 23 and verse 2, then they said, well, he was perverting the nation. He's, he's upending the nation. He's saying you shouldn't pay taxes. And he claims to be Christ, a king. And with that, Pilate says, hmm, this is actually under my jurisdiction. I, I have to protect the order. And if someone's trying to usurp the king or usurp the government, that actually is something I need to be dealing with in the common kingdom. And so that's where then you see in Matthew 27, at the end of verse 11, and he asks then Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it is as you say. It's interesting, we said last week that when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews, the you is emphasized. Think of Jesus as his time, tired, weary. He's already a, a poor, lowly man, but he's been beaten, spit upon, bloodied and bruised and mistreated. He's bound, and he's being brought before Pilate as someone who wants to usurp the kingdom and be a king. And he's saying, you, you are a king. How can this be? And in John chapter 18, Jesus clarifies, Matthew doesn't write this, but Jesus clarifies, I'm not a king in a political sense, but I'm a king of a kingdom that is not of this world. He's speaking of the redemptive kingdom that is greater than the earthly, sinful, common kingdom in which we all live. He tells Pilate, basically, I am a king of the spiritual, eternal kingdom, and for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Speaking of his incarnation, his whole purpose, nobody else can say, I was born for this purpose, and I know what it was, because I existed before I was born. He tells Pilate that everyone who hears of my truth, this truth, I almost sound like today's generation, there's no such thing as my truth and your truth, there's only truth. But He says, everyone who hears this truth, Here's my voice. And you know what Pilate says in John 18? He says, what is truth? So obviously Pilate was not hearing Jesus' voice. But then Pilate then goes outside to the Jews and he says, I find no fault in him. And that's what we see at the end of the passage of Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Think about, you're talking about the Sanhedrin, you're talking about 70 men. This is a, this is a, a rabble-rousing, loud, boisterous thing where people are accusing and yelling things, trying to get Pilate to, to, to do in Jesus. But Jesus has the self-control to say nothing. And then Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And Matthew writes in Matthew 27, verse 14, He answered him not one word, and the governor marveled greatly. Usually when someone's being accused of something, they say, I didn't do it, I didn't, but Jesus is quiet. And even the pagan governor, himself a harsh, obstinate man, is marveling at this thing. 
Jesus didn't reply or try to defend himself. And there really wasn't much of a need for him to defend himself at this point. What would be the reason for it? The Jews, the Jews had only given false charges against him. They said he, he said, don't pay taxes. Actually, Jesus said the exact opposite. He encouraged his people to pay taxes and to be good citizens. He also did not claim to be a king to the Jews, as they said. And it's not blasphemy for the one who is the Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, to say that he is the Christ, the Son of Man and the Son of God. And so there are only false charges by the Jews. He's dealt with that. Secondly, the Roman court of Pilate has already pronounced him innocent. What does he need to say? He was not an earthly king trying to usurp earthly authority and make a a Christian nation, so to speak, or, or nation build. He had something much greater and eternal in mind. And so the Roman government had nothing against him. And we saw that last week, when we preached on this passage, we saw last week that all of this was being done to fulfill both Jesus' verbal words and the word of God. Jesus was fulfilling the scripture through all of this, and it fulfills the scripture in particular for him to be hung on a tree, hung on a cross. The Jews, I think Caiaphas, wanted him to be judged guilty by Pilate so he'd be crucified. And that would show he was actually a man who was cursed and everything he said and did would be discredited. But Jesus meant for himself to be bearing our sins on the cross, to bear the curse of his people's sin, to set them free. And so in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, upon all peoples in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Because of Christ taking the curse on a tree, as prophesied in the Old and New Testaments, then we who had no other hope could come to Christ, have our sins pardoned, have new life given, the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that's the introduction. Today I want us to look at Luke chapter 23. So at this point you can turn to Luke chapter 23. And really we're looking at verses 6 through 12, but we'll start at verse 4 in Luke chapter 23. What we want to do now is to see the second part of the Gentile trials. We see now that Jesus is being sent to Herod. And we're going to look at the interaction of Jesus, or as we'll find out the lack thereof, between Jesus and Herod. As Pilate seizes an opportunity, he thinks, to take his responsibility and shirk it and give it to someone else so he doesn't have to deal with this. And he sends Jesus to Herod. And three basic outline, three basic points. I want us to look at seared conscience or consciences in verses 4 through 8 of Luke chapter 23. A seared conscience, or the S on there I think is important, consciences. Then in verses 9 and 10 we'll see the silence of Christ And then the remaining two verses, we'll see Scripture confirmed. And so we'll see seared consciences, the silence of Christ, and Scripture confirmed. So if you look at Luke chapter 23, let me read verses 4 through 8 to see what happens as Jesus is being sent to Herod. 
So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were more fierce. In other words, that word for fierce is, it was really ratcheted up. It wasn't like, oh, let's talk a little bit louder. No, they, they, were, they were violently fierce. And they said, he stirs up the people. Well, who's actually stirring up the people? Teaching throughout all of Judea, beginning with Galilee, to this place. And the key word there is Galilee. And so in verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, bing, he asked if this man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction in Galilee, that's the point, he sent Jesus to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So this is how Jesus goes from Pilate to Herod. A few things to understand the background. Pilate, if you remember, was the governor over Judea and Samaria. And I wish we had a map printed out in your bulletin. We've done that in the past. Uh, It's important to understand that Pilate was governor over Judea and Samaria. Judea was west of the Jordan, and that's where Jerusalem was. And so that's why he's having jurisdiction, all of this, and then these crimes are occurring in Jerusalem, and so, so Pilate has that. He also was the governor over Samaria as well, and both of those things are really on the west side of Israel. And he knows that Jesus is not guilty, and he knows he has no right to charge him with anything, let alone put him to death. And if we had time, we could see that Pilate was a merciless, harsh, obstinate ruler who hated the Jews. But he was afraid, not necessarily of them, but afraid of the trouble that they would bring to him. In the past, he has overreacted over the Jews, and he has reacted harshly. And it's almost as if at this point, that Caesar is basically saying, one more thing, and you're out of here. And the Sanhedrin knows this. That's why they're being so pushy and annoying themselves. They know that, that Pilate is in a pickle. And so Pilate doesn't know how to handle this. It's not just doing the right thing, but if he does the right thing, the Jews will cause a, a revolt of some sort, and he'll be in trouble, and he'll be banished. And so in verses 5 and through 7 in Luke chapter 23... Then he hears that Jesus is from Galilee. And you can just almost hear Pilate's mind thinking, Galilee? Jesus is from Galilee? Maybe I can shirk my responsibility and pawn him off to Herod. Roman law said that normally you would prosecute a person in the area that the crimes were committed, which now he's being brought to him in Jerusalem, which he has the main jurisdiction over. But Roman law also allowed, though, for someone to be prosecuted in the place that the person was from. Where does he reside? And so when he finds out that Jesus resided in Galilee, at least at some point, I can pass this off to Herod, who actually is a lesser magistrate, if you will, who's watching over Galilee in a place called Perea. And it just happened, it couldn't have been the providence of God, but it just happened that Herod was in Jerusalem at this time, just down the street in his own Jerusalem home, so I can send him that way. And so Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, and the Sanhedrin, all of them follow as well with their loud, dusty noise, because it has quite an influence. So that brings us to Herod. Who is Herod? Well, it's confusing with someone named Herod, because there's lots of Herods running around. It's hard to remember who's who and who's where. And even studying on this, I think some people are in error of getting them confused. 
But to the best of my ability, we understand it this way. First of all, you have Herod the Great. I don't know really how great he was, but he was the first one. And Herod the Great was the grand poobah of all the Herods. And he was the one who was ruling at Jesus' birth back in Matthew chapter 2. He was the one who ordered the murder of countless infants in Bethlehem because he wanted to kill the Christ child before it was too late. Herod the Great. He had many wives, maybe at least ten. And so he had several sons, even grandsons, even great-grandsons who went by the name of Herod. So you can already tell the, the root of this stock is, is corrupt and evil. So then from Herod the Great, we do have eventually, you might remember Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. He was the one who beheaded James. And because he wouldn't give glory to God, he was put to death by the eating of worms. That Herod Agrippa, one, he was actually a grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod Agrippa was actually the son of Aristobulus, which I can never pronounce his name right, but just bear with me. Aristobulus was a son of Herod, but then a son of Aristobulus was Herod Agrippa, one. And Herod Agrippa I also was a brother of Herodias. Herodias also was a daughter of Aristobulus. You'll, you'll hear about Herodias a little bit later. That's a woman. The son of Herod Agrippa I is actually Herod Agrippa II, and he's actually who you see in Acts chapter 25 and 26 with Paul standing before him. So that's a little bit of background, but where do we get to Herod Antipas? Herod Antipas is actually the Herod we have here in Luke chapter 23. Herod Antipas, he's a son of Herod the Great. So if we had a chart... We could have Herod the Great, you could have Aristobulus, you could have Herod Antipas by different moms. You also have Herod Philip, a third one who's by even another mom. Those are some key people in all of this. So Herod Antipas is a son of Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great died, Herod Antipas was made tetrarch, which means there's four of them, but it really just turns out to be he's a governor over Galilee. And Perea, and Galilee was where Jesus was from. Perea was where John the Baptist was from. Do you see the connection? Herod Philip, his brother, from a different mom, married Aristobulus' daughter Herodias. So in other words, Herod Philip married his step-niece, if you will, or half-niece, if you will, and that's pretty evil and vile. But not to be outdone, Herod Antipas desired Herodias, his stepniece as well, who is now married to his brother. And so he divorced his wife and took Herodias away from Herod Philip. So now he's, you have adultery, you have stealing a man's wife who happens to be your own niece, you have incest. Again, the evil runs rampant in the tree that comes from Herod. I don't expect you remember all of those details, but you at least get the idea. This is who, who Herod Antipas is. And if we were to go to Matthew chapter 14, that's where Matthew accounts for how John the Baptist died. We find in Matthew chapter 14, it's also in Mark chapter 6, that when Herod Antipas, that's our Herod of Luke chapter 23, when he married his brother's wife, who's also his niece, John the Baptist repeatedly rebuked Herod Antipas and called him out. This is evil. Again, it was. 
And as a result, and it says in Matthew chapter 14, for the sake of Herodias, the wife was running the show, even though the wife was a niece married to a brother. For the sake of Herodias, I think it's interesting how Matthew puts it in Matthew chapter 14, verse 3. He says, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, he, it's like a little, this is who this Herodias is. Then Herod Antipas bound and put John the Baptist to prison. And he wanted him put him to put him to death, Matthew says, but he feared the people because they thought he was a prophet. And you know the story, I think, at Herod's birthday party, Herod Antipas' birthday party. Herod Antipas's stepdaughter, which means it's the daughter of Herodias and his brother Philip, was dancing, and we think seductively, at his birthday party. Her name was Salome. And it pleased Herod, that's what Matthew says. And in his drunken state, perhaps, he promised to give Salome, his stepdaughter, through his brother's wife, anything she asked. And then prompted then by Herodias, who really hated John the Baptist, Salome said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so you can see with, with Herod Antipas, there's evil and sin here. But it's interesting when you look at Mark chapter 6 and that account of John the Baptist, what Mark actually says that Herod Antipas actually feared John the Baptist because he knew that he was a just and holy man. And it says there in Mark's account, if you put this together, Herod Antipas actually worked to protect John the Baptist. And he actually, from time to time, would have John the Baptist come out and actually preach to him. And what do you think John the Baptist was doing when he was preaching to Herod Antipas? Well, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. And so two things. He's saying, repent of what you're doing in your family and turn to Christ. Why in the world would Herod Antipas want to hear that? There's still something going on in his conscience to hear that that I don't quite understand. But in Mark's account of the death of John the Baptist... After stating this, that he heard John the Baptist many times and gladly, it says, when Salome said, I want the head of John the Baptist, it says that Herod Antipas was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths that he made and because of those who sat around him, he did not want to refute her, and so he killed John the Baptist anyway and had him have his head taken off. It's also interesting in... in Mark chapter 6, that later, when Herod Antipas heard of Jesus' signs and miracles and teaching, it said he feared that John the Baptist had risen from the dead. Who could be doing these things? So maybe that's superstition, but something's still pricking his conscience that something's, something's amiss, and there's a lot of reasons for his conscience to be pricked. It's quite a convoluted conscience, but still, maybe there's something merit there. Maybe there's some, some hope for him. So then you come to verse 8 in Luke chapter 23, and you see instead this conscience is seared. This conscience is seared, seemingly beyond hope. So if you look at verse 8 of Luke chapter 23, now when Herod saw Jesus... He was exceedingly glad 
But why? For he had desired for a long time to see Jesus because he had heard many things about him. And he hoped to see some miracle, literally some sign done by Jesus. It's hard to read the accounts of Jesus during the Passion Week. First of all, we've heard these stories so often, sometimes we get cold, but when we stop and think, it just makes our heart sink. For these kind of things to be done to anybody, let alone the Lord of glory and our Savior. And Herod Antipas only wanted to see the Lord of glory so he could have him do some tricks for him. And when Jesus does nothing, and in fact he says nothing, Herod then leads the way in mocking him and mistreating him. That's what verse 9 goes ahead and tells us in 10. It wasn't just Herod standing by. He's actually leading the way then in reaction and anger to mock him and most likely to beat him as well. With Herod Antipas, think about his conscience and then think about your own. With Herod Antipas, here's a man who had the greatest preacher known at the time preaching repentance to him. And John the Baptist, a private audience with the greatest preacher ever known to that point in time. And now this Herod Antipas has the Savior himself, the Lord of glory himself, the one who John the Baptist was paving the way for, sitting before him. Yet Herod can do nothing but look to be entertained by having Christ be his gesture or to have him be made to look like a gesture. And either way, it's a complete mockery of the Son of God, the Holy Son of God of all creation and redemption. His conscience was seared. And for the title of this first of three points, I said consciences seared. Because I think we could have the same point be made for Pilate and for the Sanhedrin themselves. To have all of this before them and to say, nope, put him to death. And the Jewish leaders were the most guilty. John chapter 19, John tells us, that there are some who have greater sin. Not all sin is the same. All sin will send you to hell. But some sins are more heinous than others. And we'll see that next week. And the Jewish leaders, with all of their knowledge and their privilege, their guilt is even worse. And so I ask you, in response to seeing seared consciences, I think of Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. The key verse there is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 where Solomon tells us, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it is, springs the issues of life. Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. If I could summarize that passage of Roman, or excuse me, Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 27, we're being told, give attention to the Word of God. Keep it in your heart. Put away all deceit that comes out of your mouth and look straight ahead at the path God has for you and don't look to the right or the left. It's a way of saying keep your conscience clear before God. If you're a Christian, I urge you to be in the Word of God. Be in prayer. Confess your sins on a daily basis. And then walk in obedience and be wrapped up in your local church where there's both accountability and strength and purifying nature of, of a conscience there within the church. And look to serve others. Don't be looking at yourself, but serving others. Those are key ways to keep your conscience clear and pure and active. If you're not a Christian, beware. Look at Herod Antipas. 
He had everything anybody could ever need to know and so much more to come to Christ, but yet he treats him as a, as a jester. And honestly, we look at the, the evil in, these, in this passage week, Passion Week, we think, how could they be so bad? But you understand, this is who we are if not for the grace of God. And if we know who Christ is and what he has done, but yet we say, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want, we're treating him like a jester as well. And eternal damnation is deserved because you're still in your sins and there's nothing left. If you're outside of Christ, beware. Do not let your heart be hardened. Do not let your conscience be seared. Ask God now to show you your sin and the blackness of your sin. He will not keep from doing so. And then ask him then to show the beauty of Christ and the beauty of the gospel that saves you from the darkness of your sin. And then in verses 9 and 10 in Luke chapter 23, we see the silence of Christ is emphasized after we see the searing of consciences. In verses 9 and 10, this is after Herod's looking to see some miracle, some sign. This is going to be fun. Then verses 9 and 10, then Herod questioned Jesus with many words, but Jesus answered him nothing. And you should underline that. He answered him nothing, not a word. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. The crowd is trying to stir it up. We see the silence of Christ in verses 9 and 10. Now, I realize a few weeks back we had a whole sermon on the silence of Christ, stealing from a sermon from Earl Blackburn. I encourage you to go back and listen to it because I stole it from somebody else. It has to be good or at least better, but I'll try not to repeat too much of what was said then, but I think studying the silence of Christ before his, his prosecutors throughout this whole matter I think is quite instructive. It helps you to see your sin and helps you love Christ more, and that can't be bad. But what's unique here in Luke chapter 23 is Jesus never said a single solitary thing to Herod. He spoke to Pilate, he spoke to, to Caiaphas, he spoke to Annas, Everybody else, he at least spoke. He's still going, when he comes back to Pilate, he'll be speaking again. But when it comes to Herod Antipas, he says nothing, and he never says a thing. He's completely silent to Herod Antipas. Why is that? I can think of four things. Four things, and this might be an overlap from a few weeks ago, but I'm trying not to be, but at least four things because of this uniqueness of being silent before Herod. First of all, Jesus was silent before Herod because Herod wanted signs, not words. Herod wanted signs and not words. He hoped to see some miracles. Jesus wasn't going to act for him, but he didn't ask for any words. Twice in Matthew, in chapter 12 and chapter 16, we find Jesus rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes for what? For asking for a sign. Twice, you think the first time they would have heard him, but twice he's asked for a sign, a sign from heaven, tell us something. And in both of those cases, in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, he says, you wicked and adulterous and perverse generation, you're asking me for signs? And then he says, there'll be no sign given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And what was the sign of the prophet Jonah? 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The only sign I'm going to give you, you'll see when I'm put to death and I rise again from the dead, fulfilling the prophecy of Jonah. It's ironic that before Herod, Herod's asking for signs. He wants to see signs, and if he just be patient, he's on verge of seeing the greatest sign that will change the world. But Herod did not have ears to hear or eyes to see. It's interesting, the one sign of the resurrection, that is proof of who Christ is. It's proven in history. He, he rose from the dead. It's proof by looking at the church. There's no church without the resurrection of Christ. It's proof in the changed lives of individuals, even in this very room. This doesn't happen unless Christ has been risen from the dead. That is the sign. But here, Herod asks for other signs. And in general, those who ask for signs are actually showing an insincerity. They're actually grasping for something that they can look at and they can trust. And they say, okay, I deem it okay. And they're still in charge. That's what signs do. Or else those who are looking for signs are looking for a reason not to trust. Yeah, that's not good enough. Show me another one. Prove it. And I will judge to see if you've got enough signs, whether I have to trust this man or not, Christ Jesus. And so for the Christian, don't fall for the need or for the clamoring for signs and wonders for yourself or when you're presenting the gospel to others. If you're not a Christian, the same thing holds to you. We notice in 2 Peter chapter 1, in verses 16 through 21, after Peter describes the transfiguration of Christ, where his glory is shown, his eternal glory is shown in a way that we can't understand, and his father speaks from heaven, says, this is my son. What greater sign could you have than that? But then Peter says, but you know what? We have a more sure word. We have a more prophetic word, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but, by, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter's saying, one of the greatest signs you could ever have seen, and it changed us. It's nothing compared to the more sure word of God that we have. Don't forget that. So Herod wanted signs, not words. Secondly, Herod does not deserve words. He doesn't deserve a thing to be said to him. Maybe a better way of putting that is, there's nothing left for him to hear. With what he already has, it might be said, you think of Hebrews, whatever already has been told and he knows, for him to reject Christ, he's trampling, he would be, he's trampling on the blood of Christ. You have to think there'd be some other way he could be saved. Herod had already heard from John the Baptist repeatedly, whose whole purpose was to preach of repentance and turning to Christ. And Herod rejected the message, and he killed the messenger. There was nothing left to help Herod. His life of sin and perversion had seared his conscience, and it appears that God had turned him over, like we see in Romans chapter 1, to his sin. And actually, Jesus' silence before Herod was actually mercy to him. Do you understand that? the more that Jesus would say to Herod would be even a greater punishment to the eternal damnation he already had.
Thirdly, Herod wanted signs. Herod did not deserve words. Thirdly, I think in some way we see in Jesus' silence before Herod, I think this can be an encouragement to us. It's vindication of John the Baptist. It's vindication of John the Baptist, which is an example, a picture of how Jesus vindicates his own people. He stands up for his own people and defends his own people. Jesus' silence in this place expresses judgment against Herod's murder of John the Baptist. And expresses a solidarity with and a standing up for John the Baptist. Just as he vindicates his own people and protects his own people. And identifies with his own people when they're mistreated. And lastly, Herod wanted signs. Herod did not deserve words. I think it was a vindication of John the Baptist. But I think lastly, maybe most of all, Jesus' silence shows Christ's trust in his own vindication by the Father. Jesus' silence shows Christ's trust in his own vindication by his own Father. Just like for us, we are to trust God for vindication when unjust magistrates do whatever they do. Or when we're mistreated in the world, as Russ was speaking about in somewhat in the scripture reading, that we are subject to the world and we have to face injustice in that way. God says, vengeance is mine. It's not ours. And sometimes that vindication or that justice comes in this life, but oftentimes it comes in the end. But it will come. And even with the Herods, Herod Antipas, what happened to him, we think, through church history and tradition, not long after this, he was banished and removed from his role because Herod Agrippus, Herod Agrippa I, his nephew, actually raised a stink about his uncle. You might remember that that Herod Agrippa was actually the brother of now Herod Antipas's wife, who was, you, you get all that stuff. So Herod Agrippa, one, actually raised a stink. It went up to those above Herod Antipas, and he was removed from his place. He was exiled and banished. Herod Agrippa, one himself, he was in Acts chapter 12, and he was the one who martyred James. And as a result of him trying to claim the glory of God, he was struck by an angel and eaten by worms in judgment. That was pretty quick. It doesn't always happen that way. Pilate, in a few years, he was removed from his position as well because he overreacted against a gathering in Samaria, handled it too harshly, much like we see in Luke chapter 13, where it says he came down hard on some Galileans and their blood was mixed with their sacrifices. He actually killed Galileans while they were worshiping. And tradition had it that then Pilate was banished and he committed suicide not long after this. Vindication comes, but it's not ours to have, and we trust in our God to do this. That's part of the redemptive kingdom versus the common kingdom construct as well. But for Jesus alone, however, he trusted his Father to vindicate him by raising him from the dead. He trusted his Father to vindicate him in the end by raising him from the dead and receiving him to the throne as king over all We read this last week in Acts chapter 13 as Paul's preaching on the first missionary journey. He said, And though they found no cause for death in Christ, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. He raised him from the dead. And Christ's resurrection vindicates him of his innocence, vindicates him of the abuse that he suffered, 
vindicates him according to the scriptures. The scriptures said this would happen. God's raising Jesus from the dead means that his atonement was accepted. When Jesus says, it is finished, the Father then at his resurrection says, yes, it is. It's accepted and it can be applied. Justice was served in Christ and he was raised from the dead and now salvation is available to all who would come to him. So we see consciences seared. We see Christ in his silence. And lastly, we see scripture confirmed. If you look at verses 11 and 12, we've already said many things like this in the past few weeks, how scripture is confirmed. Verses 11 and 12, Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt. Notice it's Herod leading the way. The original language makes it clear. Even the soldiers who are actually trained not to be doing these kind of things, to be upright, And they mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, a beautiful royal robe of some sort, and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been enemies. They'd been at enmity with each other. We've already seen last week in Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 13 that though man is responsible for their evil, God meant these things for good, and, and this was meant for the salvation of his people. And so much of Christ's suffering and offenses fulfill or foreshadow the scriptures. We've already seen that. So I want to see three things that we see either fulfilled or foreshadowed in the scriptures. First of all, turn to Isaiah 53. What we see before us again, and we can never tire of seeing this. In Isaiah 53, we see Christ with what we're reading here, and we'll continue to read next week as the silent, suffering, servant, Savior. The silent, suffering, servant. Servant, Savior. In Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Christ was born, we have exact prophecies fulfilled about Christ. Our incarnation is poverty, is lowliness, nothing impressing about him, his atonement for his people, his being silent like a lamb before the shears. So in verse 2, because we can't read it all, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground, speaking of him being incarnate, God who became man. He has no form or comeliness. There's nothing about him that's desirable or outstanding. I mean, certainly we see that he's sitting before these evil leaders, dirty, tired, beaten, already with a poor man's clothes on. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. We see that in this passage. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He came to bear our sins while God was pouring down his wrath upon him, the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, He opened not his mouth. It's hard to stop there, but for time's sake we will. Do you see how Christ is fulfilling Isaiah 53 to the letter again? As the silent, suffering servant, Savior, 
you could even put it substitutionary in there if you will that he would take what we deserve that we might be set free secondly yes he's the silent suffering servant savior secondly what we see in this passage foreshadows Christ's true royalty as king it foreshadows Christ's true royalty as king his true kingship in verse 11 they mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. And what we assume, it's, it's, a, it's a royal robe. It actually was very nice. A beautiful, expensive robe. Why would you do that? Well, you say you're a king. Here, put this on, you king. They're mocking him with this king's apparel. I think they're also mocking his poverty. That robe they put on our Lord was greater than anything he had worn in his entire life on earth. born in a poor area to a carpenter, working with his hands. This robe was greater than anything that he'd ever worn before in his humility to save his people from his sins, but it was made in a mockingly way. But though they didn't know it, though Herod didn't know that, this mocking by men was actually foreshadowing what is to come. His old, unimpressive clothes were symbolic of his humility and putting on his own humility. You think of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples in John 13 and he takes off his outer garment he puts a towel around him and he washes their feet representing his becoming man to die for his people and putting his his outer garment back on this is what I think we see here with this putting on this robe this kingly robe but it foreshadows his true kingly attire that is be more evident after his resurrection and ascension his coronation in Isaiah 6 verse 1 when we read of God on the throne I think that's Christ I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's the Christ that this is foreshadowing. It's a sad but beautiful picture. And then lastly, he's a silent, suffering servant, Savior. This foreshadows his true royalty and his true robes and his true kingship. Lastly, what we see in verse 12 foreshadows Christ bringing enemies together. In verse 12, we see Christ, what happens with Christ, it foreshadows his bringing enemies together. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. It's symbolic of, first of all, Christ, in a positive way, Christ's life and death broke down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And you can read that in Ephesians chapter 2. Those who hated each other more than anybody else in Christ come together as brothers and sisters. And that's true for all. No matter what your background, what your past, Christ brings enemies together as brothers and sisters who love one another. And it's a glorious thing in the church of Christ. On a negative side, yes, here it brought together those who are evil, who hated Christ, and it brought them together. It says they used to be at enmity with each other. Now they're friends because I guess they're joining together in this work against their opposition with Christ. Pilate and Herod hated each other, but now they become friends. Isn't it amazing how mutual enemies can, be, can, can make enemies friends? If you have two people hate each other, but wait a minute, you hate him and you hate him. Let's be friends together because we hate the same people. And that's what's going on here. And Christ says, you're either for me or against me. There's no lukewarmness. And so, church, we should not be surprised when those who are against Christ bind together and then we are persecuted as a result. 
Christ has promised us that as he suffered persecution at the hands of evil men, so we must expect the same. He said to the disciples, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. We are saved from the coming kingdom into the redemptive kingdom, but yet those still in the coming kingdom who hate Christ will bind together, and it will be difficult for us. And that's okay, because God will provide for all of our needs as we glorify Christ in that. And lastly, with the scripture being confirmed, he's a suffering servant who is silent. It shows forth his true royalty, but it foreshadows his bringing enemies together, both the positive and the church being brought together, the enemies being brought together to go against the church. But lastly, what we see here foreshadows Christ bringing enemies together between holy God and sinful men. The greatest bringing enemies together is when God, through Christ, Christ brings sinful men who are enemies of God and God is an enemy to them together as father and son and father and daughter. In Romans chapter 5 we read that for when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This foreshadows that God and man will no longer be enemies through Christ Jesus. We should say glory, hallelujah. And so in closing, I urge you to keep your conscience clear. If you're not outside of Christ, keep your conscience clear. Come to Him so your sin might be revealed and you can come to know Him. And then keep that new heart when you're a Christian pure before your God that you might serve Him all the more. Trust in the Word of God. Trust in that God will vindicate you for whatever goes on here. And trust in Christ's resurrection and the resurrection that you have and is promised. And then lastly, rejoice in Christ. Because through Christ, the enmity that we have between each other has been broken down and we can embrace one another in Christ. And the enmity between us and God is broken. And we can now call out Abba Father to our God as his son or daughter. Let us pray. Dear Holy Father, I do pray that with all that we had to hear today in a very full service, Lord, that you by your Spirit would take the scriptural teachings of encouragement and conviction, apply it as need be to us individually. And certainly here at the end through the sermon, Lord, I do pray that you'd help us to love Christ all the more, to see what he has done for us, that we can trust in him and his word for salvation, for resurrection life now, and for final resurrection in the end as well. We beg of you, Lord, that those who are outside of Christ, today would be the day of salvation for them, that they'd no longer resist and you would you would you'd awaken their conscience, give them new hearts to come running in repentance and faith and know the only joy and the true joy that comes through Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.